Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. I mean, it might be a good pretext for us to quickly touch on a subject we haven't mentioned for quite a while, which is the dreaded word Brexit. I mean, it's actually come back. I actually saw it on the front page of the newspaper the other day. It's the first time that it has been something about uh, it isn't about the virus on the front page, more or less. Uh, and so Brexit is coming back. And the reason for that is that while everybody's been preoccupied with the pandemic, the uh, <laughs> The, the clock has been ticking on the uh, on the negotiations or lack of negotiations that there have been uh, on Bre- the terms of Brexit, which is due to happen at the end of this year. And there's a very big, uh, important uh, deadline coming up in June. Uh, and I wonder where, I'll start by asking you where you think that the, the negotiations are and what you think uh, might be panning out over the next few weeks. The negotiations are at a dead end. The two parties can't make progress. I, I watched a very interesting interview the other day, very old interview from decades ago by Conrad Adenauer, who was one of the greatest statesmen in history. And what he said reminded me of Brexit. He said, for two parties to reach a negotiated agreement which pleases both sides, these two parties need to trust one another. And the problem that we have here is that the two parties do not trust one another because they're on different planets, if you like. You've got the European Union, which spent decades producing the single market. And then you've got the UK, which pretends that it likes the single market, but actually makes a big difference between a single market with rules and what Boris Johnson called a free market, where you can do what you like, there's no such thing as a level playing field, and it's a free for all. And that's where the problem starts. The EU wants the UK to introduce a level playing field. I'll give you three examples on environmental standards, on labor protection laws, and thirdly, on state aid. Because if the UK aligns these three principles with the principles prevailing in the EU, you then have a level playing field and you can get closer to each other in your detailed negotiations. But they don't want that. The UK doesn't want that and the EU insists on it. So you have commentators, for example, in the UK, who say that it's the clash of the titans. Well, my comment is that titan number one has about 55 or 60 million people. Titan number two has somewhere between 350 and 400 million people. So I rest my case on whether it's two titans. So, well, that's a good good point. I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think everybody knows that the EU has the upper hand in this particular in this particular respect. But then, uh, that in itself is just defining the problem, is it not? Because the EU is saying you do it my way or not at all. That is the EU kind of negotiating position. Well, that's not much of a negotiating position, and you can't 
in terms of uh, wanting to arrive at a, a, a compromise solution. So the question really is whether there is a compromise solution available at all. And I think it's interesting that the chief negotiator for the UK side has written this letter to Barnier saying, you know, you're being unreasonable. And Mr. Barnier has, has come back and said, no, we're not. Uh, so and we've got this critical deadline in June where both parties have to decide whether or not they want to carry on negotiating or whether we're going to just go down the path towards a uh, uh, towards uh, the UK leaving and, and trading on what's called uh, WTO terms, uh, which may have, you know, everybody says will be a disaster for the UK and it may well be so. We'll have to find out. But I think politically, uh, the, the UK government, Mr. Johnson is saying we don't want, there's no point in asking for an extension because if we're not, if we're nowhere near agreeing, what's the point of having an, an extension? Uh, and of course, there is a lingering hope, I think, on the British side that the, on the UK side that, uh, you know, the EU always does things at the last minute and we saw that last year as well. So, yeah, so it could be very bad news for us if, uh, if we go to world trade terms, but nobody actually quite knows how that will going to work out. We have published a series, the UK has published a series of uh, proposals, what, what it proposes to do on tariffs and things when the, uh, uh, if we don't have an agreement. And uh, I wonder what you made of those. Do you, did you, have you looked at those? Do you think they're credible? I haven't looked at those very closely, but I will look at those very closely. All I can say is that, I, I, of course, I agree with you, broadly speaking. Um, you have a UK hat on your head. I have a European hat on my head, you are British, I am European. So I can see very well where the UK is coming from. I did live there for 30 or 40 years. But at the same time, when you constructed in a slow motion, the European Union, you don't want to see it eroded by the British. And so I'm afraid to tell you that very personally, I am very pessimistic about these negotiations. I don't think there will be an extension to the December the 31st deadline because it would require a lot of MPs to vote against the three-line whip. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that the Prime Minister would allow that to happen. And I also don't really see how the two parties can inch closer. I mean, after all, you know, let's just go back to these three examples very quickly. Environmental standards, labor laws, and state aid. Um, if the UK, if the British agreed to that la labor playing field and to harmonize these three areas with the EU, they would also have to agree that the European Court of Justice would be the final adjudicator thereof. That well, that's is, not going to happen, exactly. No, it's not going but to why happen. should it? I mean, what's the point? Why should the uh, why should the EU be judge and jury in its own case? That doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to meet common standards of, of equity or justice, shall we say? No, I, yes, I can see that. I can see that, and that I don't see any inkling of a change of approach, neither by one party nor by the other. Take the British government, for example, they're full of virulent Eurosceptics, to put it mildly, and look at the heads of state and heads of government, government in the EU, particularly France and Germany, they are profound and convinced Europeans 
who want to continue on the path to economic and monetary union and all sorts of other unions. So they're just too far removed from one another. And do they trust each other? Well, I'm afraid not. And that doesn't all go well. What do you make of the other argument that the UK have put forward, which is they've said, well, you're not even prepared to give us things that you have allowed other countries we have free trade agreements with to have. Uh, and the reason that is because you're just too close to us. You know, I mean, again, that does sound a rather, you know, on the face of it, that doesn't sound a particularly, uh, you know, that's not a particularly trusting approach to the long-term allies in the UK. You're saying you can't even have what the, you know, the Canadians or whoever it might be uh, have, have had. So, I mean, how would you answer that? Yes, I think it's a bit spurious, that argument, that you're too close physically, especially in this world of cyber commerce. But that's the argument that they used. They don't want to have somebody breathing down their neck who has different trading rules and who can undermine the EU's competitive position, which has taken so long to reach, and have lax rules on for example, financial markets regulation um, or environmental standards. But this is, the, this is the place we are in in the 21st century. That's why I personally think it was a big mistake that the UK dropped out of the EU because the world consists of big trading blocks. Now, India, for example, the British think that they can reach a trade agreement with India. I've read somewhere that India can't wait to start negotiating with the UK and to get their own back on the colonizers. Right. Well, we had a lot of, of course, that would be true of, of a quarter of the world. And if we took that argument to its extreme, since we used to, <laughs> we used to have the flag flying over a quarter of the world in the glorious days of the British Empire, which, of course, are long gone. And, and, and some people still don't accept that they're long gone, I have to, I have to concede. But there aren't many of those people left. Um, but again, I think there is always, you know, what, what's happened to this great tradition the EU has of, you know, being willing to sort of fudge around the edges to get over difficult issues. And, and, and you know, sometimes it allows on state aid, it allows things to go through, which perhaps might be queried on grounds that are not entirely uh, consistent across the whole of the continent. Um, you know, surely if you really wanted to do a deal and you wanted to, you know, keep your access to the UK market, which after all is well known for being importing almost everything from outside its borders, you know, why wouldn't you make some compromise in terms of the overall, you know, economic loss that you might have by agreeing, you know, a deal of this sort? You know, where, what, where's, why isn't there some degree of proportion, I suppose, on the, on the EU side? Can it really be that important? Because of the politics is the answer, the short answer. If you take, for example, Italy, Spain, France and Germany, to name the four biggest, they each have in those countries fringe populist, nationalist, anti-European Union parties. And so if you give away too much to the UK, it could become a sort of blueprint. And these anti-European Union parties, like the AFD in Germany, or Madame Le Pen in France, or Salvini, who's not really anti-EU, but borderline, uh, they could start whipping up an anti-European rhetoric in their own country, uh, which could produce other countries' exit, spexit, or frexit, or whatever you want to call it. And that dimension is very important, and that dimension is not particularly appreciated by the British. They don't care about that. Well, I, I, okay. 
I think, so what you're saying, I mean, I would come back at you and say, well, what you're saying now is that the EU doesn't trust its own members anymore. It doesn't even trust the politicians in its own countries to, to so if that's their problem, then why should we have to put, you know, why is that a problem for us? Because you don't trust your own uh, members. That does seem to be, you know, a, a, a bit of a, a, not a very convincing argument anyway, if you're uh, sitting on the other side of the fence. Of course, it's true, absolutely true. Uh, I mean, everything on this is about politics, unfortunately. But politics doesn't always take you to the right place in the end, unfortunately. No, you're right. But nonetheless, these are all ingredients, in my mind at least, for failure. I yeah, don't think it's going to happen. I'm afraid it's WTO. So what we have to do is get more familiar with WTO rules. What does that actually mean? Yes, absolutely. And I think everybody has different views about what that actually means. And of course, the WTO itself, some people are saying, is uh, no longer fit for purpose uh, and is being you know, threatened by the Americans, which are also threatening a lot of you know, multinational, multilateral uh, institutions. So that's something else to, to put on the worry list. Um, but I would just, just to complete on this point about the EU and the Brexit negotiations, I mean, if you're right, that would suggest that there's going to be a decline in trade uh, between those two countries. I mean, that seems to follow logically. Or do you think it's just going to be, well, it's, it's going to have some impact on, on trade, the volume of trade, I would suggest. And therefore, it may have an impact on uh, the world economy to a small extent. I mean, the world has been worried about it. Other markets have been worrying about Brexit because it is two large trading blocks. Okay, the UK is only 55 million, but it's, uh, or 65 million actually now, but uh, it's, uh, uh, do you think it's going to have wider consequences or is it just a sort of dispute that's going to leave the UK suffering most of all? It's, um, let's say, top-down, double whammy consequences. Of course, it's going to have an impact on trade, but not for the reasons necessarily that one would think. I'll take you back to before the referendum, when people like Mr. Johnson would say that the Europeans need the British more than the other way around. Look at the amount of cars that are exported out of Germany. Look at the amount of Prosecco that is being exported out of Italy. Look at the amount of Roquefort cheese that's coming out of France. Um, they need us more than we need them. Fine. So the British went to, their, to the urns and voted. Five minutes after the vote, the pound sterling absolutely collapsed. So, of course, the propensity for the British buyer to buy a German car was severely dented. So I think that the, to answer your question, there will be a reduction in the volume and in the value of trade, but a lot of it will also have to do with the dropping value of the pound sterling, which of course, in my opinion, I, as you know, I don't like making predictions on currencies. And last week I didn't make a prediction about the dollar. I just said that what must happen will happen. But in the case of sterling, I do make the prediction but there's only one way to go as the negotiations deteriorate, and that will affect trade as well. Right. Well, we got a very clear uh, statement there, Vito, which I think will be very interesting to see how that uh, pans out over the next few weeks. I mean, I've been reading some of the, you know, the, the commentary over here by those who've been hearing what you know, Downing Street saying about, about negotiations and so on. And essentially, you know, Boris Johnson is saying, First of all, well, as we just said, there's no point in negotiating with people who don't want to, you know, give grounds on anything important. Uh, so that's, uh, and of course, that makes no sense politically either. 
But, you know, I think he still has great faith in his own abilities. And, uh, you know, he pulled something out of the hat last year at the last minute, okay, possibly by compromising something he'd said before, but then that's the nature of a compromise. Uh, and he thinks that, um, you know, reading what the newspapers who talk to him say, you know, he thinks that the, um, the risk of going to a WTO from here is much less than it was before because of the things that are happening because of the virus and so on. So we'll have to see how it goes. And I think the politics, as you say, is the difference this time is that the Mr. Johnson has a clear majority in Parliament, so he's not going to, we're not going to go through this appalling kind of protracted, uh, pointless uh, charade that we had last time leading up to the, uh, to the successful conclusion. Thank goodness. Uh, we'll have to see how it goes. But um, you're confident the EU will come through this stronger and stronger and in better health than uh, than before, obviously. Yes. Um. <laughs> you didn't sound totally convincing there, but you know, I have to say, didn't sound totally convincing. <laughs> you know, it's a moving feast. I think uh, when we discuss this the next time, there will be new elements there. And I know that the EU... Uh, that compromises, as I call it, you call it fudge, and I call it a compromise. Uh, it's the same coin with two sides on it. It's it's possible that they do find some way forward. But if you read the French papers and the German papers and so on, it, it doesn't seem very likely, I'm afraid. Well, the only thing I would say about that, I mean, so... The parallel with the, with, the, with the pandemic, you know, if you read the newspapers, the end of the world has been nigh for several, you know, several weeks now. Uh, and I think we quoted some of the kind of dire forecasts that were made by, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists, among others. This is a catastrophe of, of biblical proportions coming. Uh, and so far, we haven't seen that. Of course, doesn't mean it won't happen yet, but it, it hasn't happened now. It doesn't look like happening as far as I'm concerned. Um, so maybe, you know, if one reads the media, and I was, I was just relaying, you know, what I've read and what you and you were saying what you've read, you know, maybe they've got it wrong as well. They Maybe they're just, uh, you know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, if indeed anything's going on behind the scenes. Uh, and one always, you know, approaches this thing with a degree of optimism. Well, our Prime Minister does anyway. He may or may not be right. <laughs> well, your word in God's ear, Jonathan, because I certainly would prefer there to be a trade agreement between the UK and the EU for all sorts of reasons. Yes, absolutely. And uh, an agreement, you know, we all know that the, the whole point about trade is that it tends to be mutually beneficial. Uh, and therefore, to, you know, to take a step forward, which is in fact uh, not mutually beneficial, is, you know, the reason why one has to cling to the hope that maybe they will come to their senses at the last minute. Yes. Very good. Well, we've got plenty of meat to come back to, uh, to talk about in the coming weeks. We'll find out whether the market continues and indeed whether the Brexit negotiations are going to stall next month and be abandoned next month. Peter, thank you very much. Been great to talk to you as always. Thank you very much, and I look forward to next week, Jonathan. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.